Well, good morning. Thank you all for being here. Um, it always takes me a few minutes to to get in, in the zone. Um, so I'll just start maybe complaining about uh, my own work, because this is something that I always say that it's uh, it, for me it's important not to promise that you can you can give specific techniques or formulas on how to how to write well. Writing well is more about is about many other things besides technique, you know. Um, in the atmosphere, in the in the in the um, field in, in in which I grew up, in ter in literary terms, in Mexico, there were two different kinds of workshops, you know, or schools where you where you find where you learn how to write. One was like author-centered, which was a classical thing that started being very important in Mexico, maybe in the 40s, where you would have a very famous writer and you would have all these disciples. And at the end of the workshop, everybody was sort of writing similarly to that, to that person, you know, uh, which is really sad, you know, because, because very rarely they would write as well as the, as, the, as the author and they would just be copying certain obsessions of the, of the author. Another way that is still being done by a very interesting writer in Mexico called Mario Bellatin, who is a Peruvian writer, he has um, a school that it's called Escuela Dinámica de Escritores, in which he has some very good ideas and a couple of them that seem fraudulent for me, <laughs> actually. Um, and the thing is this, he says, you can't, precisely what I started telling you, you can't, you can teach anyone to write. What you have to do is just to help them to find their vocabulary. So in, in this school, they never ever do workshops on the texts of the students. Um, because, he, because his position is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to contaminate what the student wants, because I'm going to impose my own, my own aesthetics, I'm going to impose my own style. Mm -hmm. So what, what he does is that he invites, for instance, um, a doctor and would explain how an aut autopsy is done, you know, or would invite a, a specialist in flowers to, to explain what are the names of all the flowers in certain specific place, or a uh, cook a chef and, and say explain all the names of the of the things he uses in, in the in the kitchen and stuff and I think those are really great things you know to, to learn all these other names but at the same time it's lacking the, the the discussion the debate on the actual art of writing which is something that maybe you can teach in itself but you you can uh, you can discover again and again with the students certain things about about it. So there is something that I uh, there is a term that I like to use, maybe in a little bit irresponsibly, that I learned in a in a book called Objectivity. It's a, it's a really a amazing book about uh, the rise of the idea of objectivity. That it's something really really recent and 
I'm just going to stop it in this book just for a minute. It has nothing to do with it, but just to, to contextualize. And they, what they do, the authors in, the, in this book, is that they trace the origins of this idea and how some people started doing drawings in the 19th century, trying to draw like the, the archetypical flower, and then how it, it was substituted by photography and then some other techniques. Anyway. What, they, what these people were saying is that none of these techniques would make you a true scientist. What you needed was something that they call epistemic virtues, which is no matter what are the, the techniques and the technology that you're using, you need certain virtues to become a scientist. And I was looking at this and I said, this is something that is it's important when you're thinking about writing more than crafts, more than having a moleskin, more than having the proper, the, the proper uh, writer software, because now they sell these things, you know. Uh, um, I think it's about certain epistemic virtues. That is, how do we know the world? How do we approach the world? How do we understand our art as a way of discovering or reinventing the world? or creating truth, maybe, you know? And for me, one of the, uh, one of the, I would say that, that two of the most important things are decentering and estrangement, you know? That, for me, those are the things that will help you find um, your own voice, your own stories, your own approach to reality. So even though this is not properly a workshop, I, I, I'm going to do just a couple of really, really fast, really simple exercises just to, to get into this. So I want you to think for a second in the prefixes and suffixes that we use every day, you know, like uh, pre and post. Which other one is like really <laughs> over? This is not that much used, but I like it. Um, huh? In. In. None. Yeah. None. Ari. Which one? Ari. Ari? Recycle. Oh, re. Yeah. Tell me two or three more. And T. And T. Mm hmm. Con. Qual? C-O-E and con. Oh, con. Yeah. Anyway, we can do a, a big list. So what I would ask you to do is to attach this to a word that usually doesn't need it and to write the definition. And let me give you an example. This is an example that I like. So in my case, I have the crypto cat. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this is a cat that works undercover in the <laughs> in the world of dogs, you know. Um, anyway, just take one minute. It just take one minute, uh, and we will keep going with the, with this.
Okay, so who found, who has one good one? Who wants, who wants to say, yeah? I have uh, anti-quarrel. Anti? Anti-quarrel. Yeah, and what is it? Uh, it's a rejection of colorful vegetation and related aesthetics, a viewpoint not uncommon among geological aestheticists and rock aficionados. Wow, you already, <laughs> <laughs> you already have a whole world. Yes, yes, by, by doing this, yeah? Post Uber, yeah. Pretty much what's happening now with the collapse of the once popular cottage company. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I want to imagine what does that entail. Post Uber, it's, it, it's a, there are a lot of killing inside these cars now. <laughs> yes, one second. You were going to say? Yeah. Um, yes, uh, pseudo diluvian. Pseudo diluvian. <laughs> Seems like a flood, but isn't really one. Oh. <laughs> Like inside your house or something, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you forgot the, to close it. <laughs> uh, Anti-Gemini, the rejection of the mythical twin. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of violence this morning here. <laughs> but this is my point. It just takes to rethink one simple word that you think that you have been using properly or all your life and just put to attach something else and you will have just a, a, a whole anecdote a whole world a whole a whole set of set of um, of values and I, I, I will take the opportunity to say something in general I'm against two terms that are, are freely used nowadays well it, they have been used forever uh, regarding literature and the arts. One is realism and the other one is experimentation. And I'm against these two terms for these reasons. When people talk about realism, about a realistic narrative and a realistic, realistic story, what they are talking is about a way of narrating that is really close to what someone else defined as realistic to the manias and obsessions of someone else regarding what is the true, the true description of reality. You know? And I think if we have a task, a task that is both political and aesthetic, is to refute that, to resist the idea there is, there is only one way to describe reality, that there is only one, one core of reality. And, at this, and this brings me to the, same, to, to the next thing, why I'm against experimentation, against experimental art. I think if you are not experimenting in a way that we just did right now, then you are not doing art. You are just repeating certain formats and certain schemes, you know, but you are not, you are not actually uh, in search of a personal voice, a, a personal approach to 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 the world of senses, you know. So um, yes, before uh, going to the to the next thing, um, another really really simple exercise. When we 
organize the world, we assume that there is a realistic, a correct way to organize the world. You know? So if we think about this, about this room, for instance, it's a room in which uh, there are tables and chairs and books and bookshelves and paintings and windows. And this is the realistic and correct world uh, way to, 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 to describe this. But if we were to create a different, an alternative taxonomy, how would it be? For instance, for me, I would organize this, this room in terms of surfaces that feel nice to my skin, you know? So maybe, maybe the floor, well, maybe not there, because a lot of people have been w walking around. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe this, you know, and this is, is not that you're eluding reality. Is that you is there is something in reality that is more important for you, and this this will become the core of what you're narrating. You know, maybe I come in here and I don't I don't give a shit about books, mm -hmm. and I don't care about tables, and I don't care about sitting, but I care about just crawling on the floor or 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 getting by the by the the um, the walls just to feel surfaces so in that note give me a couple of examples of how what would be an alternative taxonomy of this room oh well maybe not this room whatever you decide yeah Yeah, of course. It's seeing a lot of things that we are not seeing. But I could see also where would I where would I hide a joint for a person that is going is going to pick it up later? You know <laughs> what is that? <laughs> <laughs> What's the best spot to have sex without being seen? What what what? And I think we should do this constantly. I, I mean, a lot of people, uh, and uh, and this is not about this is not about registering in a reliable way. This is not what journalists do. You know? It's just about feeling it in a in, in a different way, in a way precisely, in a different way from the way that a reliable source would do. In in a way, it's about becoming unreliable. Because you are not talking about, you are not doing this for the public interest. You are doing this for the interest of your, of your uh, static uh, search. You know. Um, so, an original idea is not something that someone else is saying is original. You know, an original idea is something that depends, or an original plot that depends on your on your gaze that depends on your the way you understand uh, hierarchies uh, genre and that you understand composition in the ways you understand um, you understand drama so i want to show you a painting um, that maybe you have seen a thousand times but I want you to see it in terms of what we are discussing.
It's a famous painting by Velázquez. Don't say the title because this is part of what, what, I'm, what I want us to discuss about it. Meanwhile, anyone had a good uh, prefix, prefix example that didn't share with us? No? Yeah? What was yours? Um, I did anti-water, which is anti-water. Which is a synthetic substance created by alien invaders. They brought it to Earth and has the same properties, scent and taste of actual water. <laughs> See? It's just about putting the prefix in the wrong place and you have a whole science fiction <laughs> saga there. Yeah, I remember uh, 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 in a workshop someone said pre-love, and pre-love is when you see for the first time someone and you are sure you're going to fall in love. So it's a kind of uh, crazy attitude, but I like that a lot. Anyway, I'm sure you have seen this, but just take a look at it again. And can you see? Am I blocking? Yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. <laughs> Okay, forget what you know about this painting, because I'm sure a lot of you have seen it and read about it. Just by looking at it, who is the protagonist? God. You say... Yeah. <laughs> 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 huh? You say the artist, you say the dog, you know? For me, it's obvious at, at uh, face value that it's the girl, because she's like in the center and she has the attitude you know uh, yeah she has the attitude like this is about me you know um, yeah <laughs> well um, that's that's the, the other thing what is happening there if there is a story What's the story? You already said about that guy's, I don't know, he just put a bomb there and he's saying, I'm out of here. And <laughs> yeah. But wh what, is, what else is happening there? If there is a story, what is happening? It looks like, it looks like we're looking in on them all looking at something being painted, but there's another painter in there. So is it, who is the original painter is the mm. question that I have. Well, like, and if well, you look in the mirror, there are people on the other side also yes. looking at these people. Yes? <laughs> well, so there's a lot of things to say, and I think you, you have seen really fast <laughs> all of them. But the thing is this. The title of this, of this uh, painting is Las Meninas. Las Meninas are this, are the helpers of the princess, you know? So the, that, that is the, th the first thing. This guy gave the title to the apparently less important people, yeah. you know? And, to the, to, and even though they paid him to paint the princess. But she is, not, she is not even the most important person. These are the king and the queen that are, that are looking at, at, at Velázquez painting, painting this. And the thing is this, Velázquez is doing this in front of a mirror and he decided to put himself, he is the tallest of them all. 
So you can, you, you can have a discussion about who is the person with the greatest hierarchy here. Is the painter who is the only one that is aware of what is going on? Is it the dog who is uh, up front there? Is it the, the girl who is receiving most of the light? Is it the, the servant girls who uh, receive the title of the, the title of the painting? You know? And then there is this game of mirrors by which when we think we understood what's going on, the mirrors give us a, like a, 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 second, a second round on the nature of characters, the nature of the, or, or of the story, you know? Um, tell me, any more ideas you have on this? Yeah? Yes? Yeah. So I think like after she's done getting dressed all gonna go to So if you can put that in one sentence that you say, Oh, so tell me what's tell me the story. That's the same way if I ask you about uh Superman, you tell us it's just about a illegal immigrant who does his work in secret, you know? Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> what, uh, what would be one phrase with which you would describe this? I mean, tell me. Just one sentence. Not, that, not the actual, not the co the, just the composition, or just the composition, but the composition as plot. That's what I mean. So for you, that's that's the guy who is leading the story, the artist. Yeah. Okay. Let me turn this off. What else? I'm turning this off. Sorry. Objects in the mirror are larger than they appear. <laughs> <laughs> that is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> If we were telling this story from the point of view, or just assuming that the dog is the most important one, what would what would be a sentence to describe this this story? Yeah, because you we can see at him like he he's, he, he's uh, unconcerned about uh, yeah, no. Yeah. They didn't even have the common decency to give me a chew toy. <laughs> 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 well, what I would say is something like, I worked all my life to give them the good life, and they all care about dresses. You know, <laughs> it's a, the, the, like the dog is like uh, disappointed of, about about was <laughs> <laughs> all he has done. Anyway, so. I wanted to, to do this because every time I, I look at this, the, the composition for me is a lesson about what I was, uh, was saying, about the decentering of, of a story, you know? Sometimes we assume that we, from the very first moment, that we know what is the center of a story, what is the core, who is the protagonist. And it's okay to stick to it sometimes, 
but at the same time it's a very good exercise to look at the at our presumed center our presumed core from a different standpoint and we will discover new things about it so this will i will just leave it there and another one of the things that i i am supposed to talk about is how to adapt personal anecdotes to a literary form um the first thing I would say is this. When we're talking about some personal anecdote, we already have the whole context that makes this anecdote important. You know? That's why sometimes listening to a very drunk person talking about some romantic thing is very, is very boring because, because that person <laughs> knows exactly what that why that person is crying. Knows exactly why a single gesture, a single movement of the of 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 the of the head is so tragic, but we don't know it, and we have to we have to acknowledge that in order to turn our personal stories into something that is important. Why a lot of teenage novels are so repetitive and and are so boring? And I'm saying this because I wrote a couple of them. <laughs> of course, th th they were never published. Because we assume that those moments, those epiphanies we have while we are getting drunk or getting stoned with our friends are, s are so amazing that everyone will feel connected to them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, the, but the thing is this, it is possible. It is possible to do that. But the thing is, you have to create all for the reader all those things that are inside you that you don't need them to be recreated to, to connect with the, with, with the emotion, you know? So sometimes it's about a single detail, why, um, why it was important to be in that specific night, in that specific car with, the, with, those spe with that specific set of, of, of people. So for me, it's, it requires two movements. One, to strip your anecdote or of the obvious sentimentality of the things that you think are the most are, are, are the most important and then to dress up the, an the the anecdote again with a lot of things that you didn't think that were important at the beginning I d am, am i being making myself clear with this so i have two two exercises with this I'm just going to give you the ideas. So whenever you think about something that is important for you, an anecdote, sometimes it's about uh, the first time you had sex, or sometimes it's about when you received a diploma, or where when you threw yourself out of a plane in a, in a parachute, whatever. Try to write a version of that story from the point of view of someone that hates you. You know? Um, don't Try to do this with a friend, like to ask them, so tell me this, this thing that you know is important for me, tell, tell it to me from, from a point of view of someone that, that hates me, because then it, it's a bad exercise. I have done that. Don't do it with a real person. Just do it yourselves. Like, um, like you achieved something. What would someone that really despises you, what, what are the things that this person 
would be aware of that you are not a, a, a aware of, you know? Something that you think that is grandiose, the other person will think that it's ridiculous. Something that you think that it's really viral, the other person will, th will think that it's really cheap, you know? And I'm not saying that the other way is the right way to write the story. What I'm saying is that this will give you the distance and the perspective to see what you think that is great in in a more, um, I don't want to say objective, but in a more three-dimensional way, you know? Um, so that is for me one that is, it's, it's difficult, but it's, uh, but it's really useful. Because when you do this, you get rid of the cheap sentimentality. And you have to look for what Make, made, made it a, a really emotional, a really important anecdote. The other thing that I think is, it's very important is just to take an object, an object that belongs to that story, and describe exhaustively everything that happens in that story uh, with that object. Why is that object so important and do it without using um, a lot of adjectives. Just describing why it is crucial. It can be just a mug, a coffee mug, it can be a pillow, it can be a pen, you know. But the thing is this, the same, the same words we use to describe distances, to describe depth, to describe texture are words that we can use to describe um, emotions. And this, and this is an, an exercise that is important for me because when we are trying to describe emotions, sometimes we are hostages of literariness. And by this mean, by the way in which someone else describes those emotions, and now we have to just repeat those things. You know. When you try to convey sadness through the description of a glass, just to, just to say something, or when you try to convey ecstasy through the description of a mug, you know, without using the adjectives associated to ecstasy, you will find new ways in which, in which you can uh, approach the emotion. You know. um, just interrupt me if, if any of these things is, is sounding really abstract or not, uh, not clear at all. Um, another thing is this. Think about the craziest person in your family. And I'm using crazy in a really liberal way, you know? Because that's also something that depends on the context. Sometimes, very often, especially in this kind of work, you are, you are the craziest person in, yeah. in, the, in, in the family. But just think about it. So I'm just going to give you a, a, a really extreme example. Um, and this is absolutely true. I have a cousin that used to speak to, to the Kennedys, to the death Kennedys. Not the musicians, but to the actual death Kennedys, you know? <laughs> he, he, 
he would come and tell you like, oh yeah, I was, I was uh, talking to Mr. Robert Kennedy and he told me this and this and this and he was, then he said I was talking to, he was also friends with a, the, the, a secretary of President Clinton, you know, and and the. And when you try to understand what's going on there, because I remember after one of the sessions, I told my mom, what if in the future we discover that he actually was talking to these people all the time, you know? And when you try to get into their craziness and you try to understand what their world is, you will, you will see that there is a story that affects you personally. And that this it's telling more than just a, a family drama. Every family has Shakespeare already in, in, in itself. You know, in every family there's a lot of backstabbing. In every family there are struggles for power. You know, and it's not that Shakespeare saw all those kings up close. What he saw was just the way in which normal people struggle for power even if that sometimes power is having an onion you know? and that is something that we can replicate in 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 our stores i'm just saying power but it can be any other kind of thing the love we have for a cat it's it it's very similar to the, the love we have for people it's not the same thing but it's very similar in that in, in that sense you know um Anyway, so this, these are just a, a few ideas. Uh, the next thing that I would say is about how, how to improve a first draft. And here I have to say that for me, one of the most important principles when, when, when we write is how to achieve a very difficult balance between two things. On one hand, you have to be um, you have to accept criticism. And more than that, you have to be critical with your own work. You, know? you have to accept the idea that sometimes people have a, have a way of listening to your text, have a way of understanding your ideas to which you are blind. And sometimes you just have to be able to work and rework your text in order to make it better. On the other hand, at the same time, you have to be stubborn enough to just say to everyone, fuck you, this is what I want to do, and I'm going <laughs> to stick to it, you know? But this is the most difficult thing to do, this balance. Because you can go to either side, and we tend to go to either side all the way. Either you, you finish something and you say, this is just garbage, this is never going to work. Or sometimes you actually w write garbage and you say, wow, man, this is the best thing that has been written since James Joyce, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and the thing is, if that makes you happy, that's okay. You, you don't need it anymore. But if you are trying to communicate with someone, it's, it's important to try to achieve that balance. So um, this is one of those epistemic virtues. It has to do with morals. It has to do with humility. It has to do with, with all these things. So it's not easy to get there. What I have is a couple of things that for me at least, they have worked a lot in order to acknowledge what is important in your text and what is uh, dispensable in your text. One of them is 
It doesn't matter how long your work is. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Turn your book, fiction or non-fiction, into a sonnet. The, and this is my logic. And I have done it, and, and for me, it has worked. If you can put the important things of your story in 14 lines, and, and at least in Spanish, 11 syllables each line, rhyming them, then you know what you're doing. You can't bullshit yourself in 14 lines. <laughs> you, that's the thing. You have to really, really strip of bullshit, all, all your project, because you don't ha you have no space for that. And when I'm saying bullshit, I'm not I'm not talking that you leave only the skeleton of the actions. When you are telling a story, the actions are not o the only thing that is important. So in these fourteen lines, sometimes you have to devote three yes to describe how the protagonist is dying out of love you know and then maybe the other lines is are, are how then she is receiving money from from the russians i don't know you know so but, but my point is this this process of identifying what is the important thing is not about leaving out abstract things or ideas and just leaving there the plot i'm not i'm not saying that this is a substitute for the for a scheme of the plot you know so this is one of them um i mean if we had more time we would do it i uh, sometimes i have done this in, in in class i tell them when uh, when i do this in workshops i tell i tell the students tomorrow come with certain ideas of of your plot and write down what you think is like the emotional core of your plot and, and write down a lot of synonyms of these words that you think are the most important words for your story. The most important verbs and the most important nouns and then because this will, will help you to, to write down the sonnet. So two other exercises. This might sound really stupid, but, I, but it's, it's, also, it's, it's also useful. Think about your story as, someone you, as something that you have to advertise. You know? So try to write a slogan in which, as if you were writing a commercial for TB, you have to say in 10 words of, or less the reason why people should go there. So imagine uh, Hamlet, because paternity has, has more secrets than you, you, you know. I don't know, something like that. Um, um, with, with the metamorphosis, with Kafka, you know. Uh, because becoming a cockroach is more fun than what you think. I don't know. I'm just being. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, uh, I just came out with that in, in this moment. But give me give me one example if you can. Think of a classic. 
war and peace because Russia is always inviting us to, ha to go there in winter, you know? <laughs> uh, oh, because I'm the one who's gonna, who, who's gonna defeat them in winter, I don't know. Um, yes, oh, you were not, I thought, sorry. <laughs> no? Well, yes. Finding a market for blubber. Finding a market for, for what? Blubber. For blubber, where is, where is blubber? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if you do enough of this, then you will find things that, that, that are illuminating in, 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 in that sense, yeah. Waiting for Godot because banter and nooses help us pass the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really nice, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> see? And and this is the thing you are you are putting attention in in a, in a specific part of this you know so you can do uh, what I do especially with the sonnets is I write a sonnet for each chapter and a sonnet for the whole thing you know and this is not something done to be published it's just for me to organize my ideas and even to find because when you write a sonnet and you have to rhyme it then you are you are forced to to find very different ways of talking about the same thing so you will find that there are many other words with which you can you can develop uh, your ideas about this um, okay one last exercise regarding this um, I you, you get your plot and you write it in two sentences or in three sentences. So you take all the verbs and all the nouns and you look up all the synonyms for those verbs and for those nouns. And then you write up again the plot, but you cannot use none of those words, nor the original words, nor the synonyms that you, the, the, the you looked up. So you are really, really, really going to to see if you know your story. If you know your story, you are not hostage of that set of words that defined it at, at the beginning. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And, um, and this will help you, again, to see when you are just rambling and when you are sure of the things that you want to say. Um, anyway, I want to leave some time for your questions and um, suggestions. No? Yeah. It, so, I'd, I love all of these exercises and I think they're going to be really helpful for me. Where did it come from for you? This is more of like an idea of like, how did you craft this class? But like, are these things that somebody taught you or are these things that you've like explored in crafting your own work that have just worked over and over? Some of them, the, well, the, the sonnet thing is something that I just started doing by myself. Okay. I'm not a poet and the first time I, I wrote a sonnet and I realized how difficult it was and how how complex I it was, H how many ideas you can put inside a sonnet. Mm -hmm. I realized, oh, this, this would be 
a great way to do an abstract with a, without doing an abstract, you know? To do an abstract with uh, artistic uh, features. And that, that, that really helped me. Uh, the exercise about the prefix, I learned that from a friend of mine called Alberto Chimal, who is a science fiction writer in Mexico, and he called it the fantastic prefix exercise. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I and I think it always works because, it, but more than that, you can just develop a lot of this just following uh, certain principles. And as I said, my my principles with this are estrangement and decentering. Once you decide that you can find a different center of the story, a different core, and once that you get to the task of of discovering new characteristics in words, of feeling their strangeness, you know, then, then you, you can you can find a lot of ways of of doing this. For instance, another thing that I that I do is that I take words that are old words, words that we use all the time, and I try to find a a way in which they can be used not not as a not corrupting them but finding but trying to use them in a way in, in which they haven't been used for instance there is a, this expression in spanish which is poner pies en polvorosa it's a really old expression that was used maybe in in the in the golden in the golden age of literature Poner pies en polvorosa, literally, let me yes, write this down. Is literally, is like to put your feet in a cloud of dust, which means to run away, to escape, you know? So nobody uses this right now. If someone uses this on the on the, st on the street, some if you are with your friends and you you steal a twink and you say "Vamos a poner pies en polvorosa," people would look at you like "What?" what you it's like you're it's like you're talking like Marlowe or something like that, you know. And but then I say, but and but this is something that I really like. Now that I said Marlowe, to take the language from other contexts. And this other context can be another time, another country, a certain uh, 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 and uh, different uh, workspace, and try to make it work in your context. So I was thinking about this, and I said, this is the word, this is the best word in this sentence, and it's also the word that nobody uses now. And I said, how can I use it now in a way that will, that will uh, work? And I say, oh, you know, Tinder, 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 the, 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 the dating, the, of course, <laughs> the dating app, it's about putting your lips in a cloud of dust because you kiss someone and you run away. And I say, yeah, it's poner labios en polvorosa, you know? And, it's, and, and, and I said, oh, and I can use this in, in, in a lot of ways, you know? And, and, it's, and once you start thinking about it, it will sound weird to the person that, that reads it for the first time, but since you are 
giving the proper context. The context will bring this back to life. That's so it's, cool. it's like, uh, I, I always give th this example. Um, my dad uh, used to bring uh, strange things to my house because he, he would just like, and strange people, but, but, but uh, um, regarding things, he would just find something in a bazaar and he would bring it. And one day he came with a, with a window. He found a window that belonged to a house that didn't exist anymore. So he just put legs to the window and turned it into a table. And we still have that table. You know? And the thing is, it works as a table now. You put a, a coffee mug there. But at the same time, you can see through. You know? It's still a window. So something that apparently had no more use because the, the house to which it belonged no longer exists, is, is doing its work in a different way. So this word is like the window in the sense that its context is, is it's not there anymore. But we can do it, in, but we can bring it to us. You know? um, this was a long answer. I don't know. Awesome. I just I just rambled <laughs> about. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> tell me. Yes. Uh, last night you said you took a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. um, you also think a lot, you know, which I certainly you know, imagine in your past. But you also take a lot of notes on your stories, and then you write them quickly. So, could you describe your that generative period a little bit more? Yes. Um, well, I'm all the time taking taking notes. But this is important. I'm not taking notes in the sense of taking realistic notes, you know? And, and let, let me just explain you this. There is this great, great Mexican writer uh, called Jose Revueltas. He, he, he was in jail several times. He wrote a lot about being in jail and about his being a communist and about and about his struggles anyway so he knew the dark side of the cities in Mexico and Carlos Fuentes who was becoming the, the who was the up-and-coming writer and, and was younger than him he told him hey let me hang out with you you know and he brought him with him and he after and after bringing him he said, I'm not bringing this guy with me anymore. When I go to a whorehouse, I go there to fuck. Carlos Fuentes goes there to take notes, you know? So this is the thing. When I'm saying taking notes, I'm not talking about fucking, but I'm not, to I, but I'm, but I'm not talking about taking notes in that sense, you know? You have to really be connected with what you're hearing, what you're living in the moment, whatever, you know? If you are just relating to the world in terms of taking notes, then you're not really getting the full experience, you know? So I have, I have, my, my, I have notebooks with me, but more often is when I go, go back home, because then you have the time for the thing to ferment in your, in your, in, in your head. So I take all kinds of notes. I take uh, mostly of words that I like and that I, uh, and, and that I don't know why, but I, I, I know that at some point I'm going to use them. Uh, sometimes anecdotes, 
people who, to, who tell me uh, uh, an anecdote that I, for some reason, is close to my concerns, close to something that I, I think I can use. Um, sometimes it's just uh, like mm, things that sound well, even though I don't know exactly what they mean. But, but words that I think that are conveying meaning through their s musicality mm. more than through their actual, uh, actual the meaning y you see in the dictionary. And, and this is very important because we have to be aware that the meaning that we are creating in a writing is not only in the definition of the words, but it's also in the way these words sound together what 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 kind of discourse in musical terms they, they are creating you know so i take all these notes and i have like pages and pages and pages of notes and sometimes it's just it's just uh weird ideas that that come up to me that i like i say like uh what's what's going to happen when when dogs rule the world you know and, and it's uh, and it's uh, uh, just things like that you know and you don't know when it's gonna, when this is gonna become a story, or when you're gonna use it as a metaphor for something else, or or whatever. And and they are disorganized for a while, and then I just let them sink in my in my head, following the th the th the ideas or the emotions that somehow are giving me some direction you know so after i wrote kingdom cons which is this this, this story about the relation with an, ar an artist and a powerful guy i was more aware about the fact that i was um that i thought that migration is the most important phenomenon happening in the world nowadays mm -hmm. and this happened because by that point i had lived already in five different cities and, and I, I have been really close to this. And a lot of ideas that I wrote down could have been used in, different, in, different, uh, in a different story. But somehow, they started making sense in relation to this big topic, to the topic of voyage, to the, the topic of transformation through, through voyage. You know? So I would say that this is the difficult part, to identify what are the big topics that will organize all your notes. But you should take all the notes that, that come to your, to your head, uh, even if they sound silly. Very often, the, 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 the ones that are silly, sillier, no, you know, they are the ones that somehow are going to illuminate something for your work. Yeah? Yeah. Um, while I'm while I'm writing, no, no. When the translator is translating, is there dialogue? Yes, it's uh, it's a lot of dialogue. Um, with the three books, it's it, it's really interesting. Well, not with all translators, because that depends on how much a translator wants your input. A lot of translators are used to work with the books of dead people. You know, so you can't send an email to Kafka. So, <laughs> so, so they say like, no, I don't need the, the author's input. I, this is what I do. 
but a lot of other translators they want to get all the nuances and they want to get all the details and with Lisa I, I exchange daily emails for months you know uh, and sometimes it was about the uh, about the plot sometimes it was about the rhythm sometimes more often it was just about how to come up with a solution for a word that didn't exist in English or sometimes for a word that actually didn't exi exist in Spanish but I just came up w with it or, or I took a, a really old word and that that was very interesting um, it doesn't happen with, with all translators for instance Kingdom Comes was just translated into Norwegian and I learned about it when the book was ready. I was never in touch with the translator. The Dutch translator also sent me a couple of emails just asking very specific things, but I, I had no interference in that. And I don't like putting pressure on translators. I assume that the translators know their language, know their readership much better than me. So it's, it's their, their prerogative, you know? Uh, so I have no idea how that sounds in Dutch or in Norwegian, but it's it's just a step into the abyss that you have to embrace, you know. With every there is the, the perfect translation doesn't exist because every translation is uh, as I was saying yesterday is recreation. So it depends on the kind of language that your translator is handling at the moment, even that uh, her prejudices and her wisdom, you know. So you just have to accept that there is loss in every translation, but that there is also a lot of gain in, in every translation. And, but yes, I work with them as much as they ask me to work with them. Yes? To follow up question on translations, uh, uh, I was married once to a professional translator whose English was not her first language. And, uh, but she adopted English as her written language. Do you, do you have, do you go back and forth? Do you, do you think and write in Spanish or do you think and write in, in English? No, I think and write in Spanish. Um, but actually there, with Lisa, we had a very interesting uh, experiment once. Um, a magazine, I don't remember which one, asked me for a, sh for a short story and I wrote it and I wasn't sure and I sent it to Lisa and, I, and I, I, I told her, you know, they want this story translated for the magazine, but before you translate it, give me your opinion because I'm, I'm feeling really insecure about it. And she told me, you know what, I, I think that this and this and this would work in a, in, in a, in a better way. And I rewrote it following her, her advice. So she, in that sense, in that specific story, she was more than a translator, she was a co-author. Uh, even in the Spanish version, you know. Um, but no, I don't think in English when I'm writing when I'm writing in in, in Spanish. Reading in English and writing other stuff in in, in English give me some insights uh, on Spanish words, you know. Because once you you are somehow proficient in a different language, you start looking at your own language through a different lens, you know. Because it's, you realize that, for instance, in, in English, the, the planets don't have gender, no? In Spanish, all planets have gender. You know, the moon is feminine, 
Mars is uh, masculine, Saturn is masculine, most of most planets are masculine, and, and things like this. Or that a pencil in Italian is feminine. And that was a really strange thing for me when I discovered that. Well, you know, a pencil also it has that, all the Freudian thing about it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, sorry about that image. Uh, uh, um, anyway, so no, that's a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Does profanity have a different meaning? In my wife's case, um, um, the profanity she had to slip into the Slavic languages, and she said the further east you went, the more imaginative ways you could find to insult somebody's mother. <laughs> <laughs> when she was in a grocery store and she couldn't find something, um, she would use the F word fairly liberally, uh, whereas I would ask her, what would you do if you were in Tel Aviv? Would you use some similar profanity? And she, oh no! Oh. Uh, so the, the language didn't have the taboos. No, profanity is amazing because because it requires imagination and it tells you a lot about what is important and what is sacred in each society and things that can be really insulting in one society they are not in another one. So the Spaniards who are super Catholic they have a lot of really horrible, despicable insults that have to do with Christ and the Virgin. And it's like, I take a shit in the nails of Christ. And it's like, wow, that is really elaborate, you know? <laughs> you know? And, and I, c I come in that, in anyway. There are a lot of those, you know? And, but no, really, I think profanity, it's, it, we we could do a lot of a lot of exercises uh, on that, you know. What would be come up come out with a good insult that it's understandable in your own town, you know, and and because that's how they work, you know. Insults it's it's not that insults are going to be universally understood. Maybe regarding mothers and I don't know, but it's it's usually context is really important. Yeah. No. Something else? No? Yes? This might be too complicated to talk about, but this, what you're doing with the, the lips and the dust, there's such an interesting use of the yakar word. Harcha. Yeah, I know I'm saying it wrong. Uh. <laughs> but the way that the translation process around that yeah. word and, and the... I no, no, I can talk about that. I, 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 I'm just always a little bit scared to talk about because it can it it can get uh, it can get dark no it can get abstract but the thing is this um, in science preceding the end of the world which I, I, I have told you yesterday is the story of the trip of a woman to the other side and in this trip she is rethinking herself rethinking her language rethinking these countries so for me this woman is a border woman she's a woman in transition she's a woman that is transforming one of the things that I like to go back uh, again and again is medieval literature especially Spanish medieval literature I think the medieval writers were amazing in, in, in many ways but one of them is that when they didn't understand something they would just come up with it and they would just <laughs> they, they would just invent that part of the world so there are a lot of travel books 
and then uh, and they describe places that actually they have not visited because they were scared and, and they said, mm, I'm guessing that there are Amazons, you know? And, uh, and sometimes they just create things uh, like uh, uh, in this book called uh, The Book of the Wonders of the World, I think that's the title. Um, this guy supposedly gets to a, to a town in Africa and he says, in this town, when your father dies, they cut his head off and they boil it and they give soup uh, of, of that, uh, uh, of, of the head to every person that comes so that he will keep living with, uh, with, the, with the people that came. As far as I know, that has never happened, but, but, but it's amazing <laughs> that the way they, under, that they, they just imagined this. Anyway, so um, in my limited readings of medieval literature, there is this thing in the 13th century that there were certain poems written in Arabic. And you have to think that in this moment, what we know as Spain was Arabic, was Muslim. And there was all this, all this tension. It's what the Spanish arts call the reconquest, you know. And, and you, there were these poems written in Arabic, but in some of them, at the end of the poem, there was this section that was written in Arabic characters, but it sounded that like something else. It sounded like what in the future would be the Spanish language. So it was a pre-Spanish written in Arabic. And usually this last part was, uh, not all the time, but very often, it was a feminine voice. And it was a feminine voice saying farewell to a lover. And I was thinking about it, and I said, this is, in a lot of ways, this is my novel. It's because this is a language in transition. Mm -hmm. This is a voice in transition. And, and these were called harchas. And I decided to use that word, the word harcha, in my novel, instead of using door, exit, exiting, going out, and all the, all the expressions related to this. So, so that the reader would have the feeling, even if, if the reader didn't have the whole explanation, that this kind of door was not a simple door. That this moving from one space to another had something special in it. That this exiting was a singular exiting. And I tried to do this just by putting a word that nobody will, would, underst would understand. So I would just put my, I would just um, expect the reader to understand it with the context. And some people then would look up the word and find more or less what, what it was. And I think, it, I think it worked. But the thing is, when the moment to translate it came, this was really difficult because there is no translation of this word into English. You know, when medievalists uh, use this word, in what, when English-speaking medievalists use this word, they used the original harcha. You know? So, uh, how would we do this? And Lisa really worked on this super hard, and eventually, she came to the solution. When it was used as a noun, harcha, it would be verse when it would be used as a verb, 
it would be two verse. And it, this is a nice solution because there are a lot of verbs in the, in the English language that include this, this syllable and that describe movement, converse, traverse, you know. And at the same time, it had all the, the implications of a poetic activity, you know. So, well, I, I liked her solution a lot, you know. And this is one of several that, that we have discussed, discussed a lot. No? That's it? Oh, okay. Thank you.